All right. We're going to go ahead and get started, if I could have your attention. Um, good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. I'd also like to uh, wave and say hello to our online audience. We usually have several hundred people uh, from all over the country, some from all over the world. I guess they wake up early uh, to uh, join us for these events. So, so welcome to all. Uh, my name is Joey Kuhn. I'm director of student programs here at the Cato Institute. Some of the uh, programs and opportunities that we have available that focus on students include our uh, competitive internship program, our student-focused website, Cato on Campus, which is catocampus.org, our monthly student events, uh, co-sponsored by the D.C. Forum for Freedom. If you have questions about these things, I'd go to uh, catocampus.org, sign up for our monthly newsletter. We've got some free uh, pamphlets and things out there in the hallway where we're selling some books, or you can just uh, find me during our reception and, and ask any questions that you may have. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. Gary Johnson is former governor of New Mexico and a longtime advocate for liberty. He supports making government smaller and more efficient, lowering taxes, ending the costly and destructive war on drugs, protecting civil liberties, revitalizing the economy, and strengthening entre entrepreneurship and privatization. For supporting such policies, Re Reason Magazine published an interview with him affectionately titled, America's Most Dangerous Politician. In 1994, Governor Johnson was elected governor despite having little experience in politics. As governor, he was known for his common sense and pro-liberty approach to governing. Uh, he has also advocated the decriminalization of drug use and possession, calling the war on drugs, quote, an expensive bust, end quote, making him one of the highest-ranking elected officials in the, in the United States to speak out publicly against the war on drugs. His stand prompted a scolding letter from Clinton federal drug czar uh, Barry McCaffrey, who informed Governor Johnson that, quote, your publicly stated positions are inconsistent with my national drug control policy, end quote. Um, I'm not sure. I don't want to speak for him. <laughs> But as I think uh, Governor Johnson will, will probably tell you, uh, contradicting, contradicting the federal uh, policy in this case was probably the point. Um, as Reason columnist Jacob Sullen has pointed out, uh, Governor Johnson's positions on drug policy is upsetting to all of the right people. <laughs> Governor Johnson currently serves on the board of directors of Students for Sensible Drug Policy as well as Students for Liberty. He is an avid skier, adventurer, and bicyclist. In 2003, he reached the summit of Mount Everest, having made the climb with a broken leg. Jesus. Uh, it, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Governor Gary Johnson. So uh, I, I think we'll open this up to uh, questions and comments and insults after I say a few words. But... Uh, uh, I, I would like you all to know that, uh, first and foremost, uh, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I started a one-man handyman business in Albuquerque in 1974, uh, me, uh, and in 1994, actually had 1,000 employees, uh, electrical, mechanical, plumbing, pipe fitting, really, uh, the American dream come true. Uh, it was just based on the simplest of notions, showing up on time, doing what I said I would do, doing a little bit more than what I said I would do for people. I sold that business in 1999. Uh, nobody lost their job, and business is doing better than ever. Uh, I view my venture into politics as uh, entrepreneurial. Uh, I had never been involved in politics prior to running for governor of New Mexico. Uh, I went and I introduced myself to the Republican Party a couple of weeks before I announced, uh, and what they said was, hey, we like you, we like what you've got to say, uh, but you need to know that you'll never get elected, that it's not possible to come from completely outside of politics and get elected in a state that was two-to-one Democrat. Well, uh, I got elected, 
And I'd like to think it was based on what I had to say, which was I was going to bring a common sense uh, business approach to state government, uh, that it was going to be about issues first, uh, politics last, uh, and that I was going to put the issues that should be on the front burner on the front burner regardless of the political consequences. Um, I think it's significant that I got elected in a state that was two-to-one Democrat. Uh, one of the things uh, that I got known for uh, nationally was was the fact that I, I vetoed 750 bills while I was governor of New Mexico. Uh, I had thousands of line-item vetoes while I was governor of New Mexico. Putting this into perspective, uh, this was like more vetoes than the other 49 governors in the country combined. Now, and only two were overridden, so it ended up making a really big uh, difference. And uh, and it was about looking at government treating everybody equally. That's the way I looked at all this legislation. And there was so much legislation that favored corporations, groups, uh, individuals, as opposed to legislation that affected everyone uh, equally. And I always viewed it from that standpoint. You know, uh, speed limits, where you, ha where you get you, the speed reduced in a construction zone to 45 miles an hour, and they quadruple the fines for doing that. Well, I vetoed that kind of legislation because I found myself in those situations, and at times I found myself going 45 miles an hour when it, when it warranted that, when there was actually construction going on, but other times nobody was there, and you drove through those areas at 70 miles an hour because nobody was there, and I didn't want to have to pay that quadruple fine. So I kind of looked at all this legislation uh, from that standpoint. Uh, and it made a big difference. Like I say, only two of the vetoes were overridden. So it was billions of dollars worth of new spending uh, that I would have vetoed. And out of all those bills that I vetoed, um, a third of the bills I vetoed were Republican bills because Republicans grew government uh, just like the Democrats. And out of those 750 vetoes that I vetoed, a hundred of those vetoes uh, were where the vote in the legislature was 117 to zero. And I vetoed the legislation and I took on the debate and the argument that we don't need to grow government. We don't need to grow government, that this is not going to make a difference in any of our lives. And I took that stand and I debated it and I discussed it. And what was most significant is this is what I did for my first four years in office. And I get reelected in a state that's two to one Democrat on the basis of what I call good stewardship of tax dollars. That's what I that's what the way I labeled it. You, you all recognize legislators will legislate anything, right? There's nothing legislators won't legislate in the name of health and safety and for our children. Uh, I, I remember a, a young man hurting his head pole vaulting in northern New Mexico. Well, the next thing you know, I have a piece of legislation on my desk making helmets mandatory for pole vaulters. Now, you know, good idea. I pole vaulted in high school. I thought that should be a choice. I just really thought that that should be a choice. I would not have wanted to wear a helmet pole vaulting, and I was a pole vaulter. So I, I vetoed that legislation. The favorite bill, my favorite bill that I vetoed was a Republican bill that but for my signature would have become law in New Mexico. It was a dog and cat exercise bill. A Republican bill, it required pet stores to exercise their dogs and cats two hours a day, three times a week. Now, I got to tell you, 
I think it's a good idea. It's where I would want to buy my dogs and cats is in a pet store that that advertise we exercise our dogs and cats two hours a day, three times a week. But if I would have signed that legislation, then I would have had to have funded the dog and cat exercise police. On and on and on. Another thing that I was known for nationally as governor of New Mexico, uh, I was more outspoken than any governor in the country regarding school choice. I really believe in school choice. I really believe in free markets. I really believe that educational entrepreneurs unleashed on our education system, K through 12, would improve education dramatically. I really believe that. And I really believe that to try and even predict what the free market might bring to education K through 12, that you would be a mistake to even try and predict the innovation uh, and, and the better products, the better services that would result from doing that. So for six straight years, I proposed in New Mexico that every student get a voucher that would have brought about this change. Now, it didn't go anywhere, but I made, I made that proposal. I took on that argument, and I still do to this day. I think that it would dramatically improve education in this country if we were to unleash educational entrepreneurs in that area. Uh, the third thing I was known for nationally as governor of New Mexico is when I started my second term, I wanted to keep with a promise that everything was going to be about best product, best service at lowest price, that everything was going to be a cost-benefit analysis. What are we spending and what are we getting for the money that we're spending? So in that context, I really wanted to take a hard look at the war on drugs, and I wanted to include legalization as a potential alternative. Now, I came at this from the standpoint of half of what we spend on law enforcement, half of what we spend on the courts, and half of what we spend on the prisons is drug-related, about $70 billion a year. And what are we getting for that $70 billion a year? Well, we're arresting 1.8 million people a year on drug-related crime. I always point out that's the population of New Mexico that gets arrested every single year in this country. We now have 2.3 million people behind bars in the United States. That is the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world on a per capita basis. It's just really insane. Over half of those people behind bars in this country today are there on drug-related, nonviolent crime. So I wanted to look at the issue. And when I, when I went to look at the issue, I, I needed to start with Holland, which at the time, 1999, the government said had skyrocketing drug use and that they, had, that they had crime out the roof. And it had to do with the fact that they had effectively decriminalized all drug use. Well, it turns out on very short examination that Holland has 60% the drug use as that of the United States. Now, that's on a per capita basis, but that's marijuana, that's hard drugs, that's kids, and that's adults. Portugal, 10 years ago, decriminalized all drug use, and in the last 10 years, Portugal has been able to document that they have had a 50% reduction in heroin use in their country. And the only thing that they've done really, is, have, is decriminalized all drug use. There was that, which was you know, Holland's experience, and then there was the fact that marijuana is a gateway drug. Well, 
Uh, I've smoked marijuana in my life, and my experience would say to me, it said to me, marijuana was not a gateway drug. But I guess I needed to look into it and see if there was any any notion that marijuana was a gateway drug. Well, there's not. There's absolutely not. The government itself conducted a study that determined there's no causality between smoking marijuana and moving on to harder drugs. If there is a gateway element uh, to marijuana, it's that the person that's selling marijuana is also selling other harder drugs. And so for a kid uh, who buys this stuff on the black market, that's exposure to cocaine or heroin or LSD or methamphetamine that they might not have otherwise had if it was a controlled, taxed, regulated environment. So after looking at the issue for a fairly short amount of time, I came to the conclusion that 90% of the drug problem is prohibition-related, uh, not use-related, and that's not to discount the problems with use and abuse, uh, but that ought to be the focus. So in 1999, I advocated legalizing marijuana. And when I say legalize marijuana, uh, it's never going to be legal to smoke pot, become impaired, get behind the wheel of a car. It's never going to be legal to smoke pot, become impaired, do harm to others. Uh, when it comes to all the other drugs, uh, I would advocate harm reduction strategies, reducing death, disease, crime, corruption, the things that we really care about. In a nutshell, it's looking at the drug problem first as a health issue rather than a criminal justice issue. And I would just uh, like to put a face to the 1.8 million arrests in this country. I think we have this sense that we're really not uh, arresting people that possess drugs in this country, that we're really arresting people that sell drugs in this country. Well, 90% of all those arrests are for possession only, and if I could put a face to those arrests... Uh, I was talking to a fellow in Des Moines, Iowa, this is about three months ago, uh, who had been arrested and charged with possession of one gram of marijuana. One gram of marijuana, that's about the weight of a piece of paper. Uh, and he was arrested for one gra uh, possession of one gram of marijuana with intent to distribute it to his 17-year-old daughter. He received a 25-year prison sentence and had just gotten out of prison having served over one year in prison, where he was now looking at many, many years of supervised probation and parole. That's a face to the 1.8 million arrests in this country. Uh, I got out of office January 1 of 2003. Uh, I was term limited. Uh, I'm a firm believer in term limits. Uh, I think that when politicians are limited in their time in office, that they do good things for you and I, as opposed to doing whatever it takes uh, to get reelected. So firm believer in term limits. Um, I did not want to have a say in what was happening in national politics. I didn't want to have a say in what was happening in local politics because I had my shot, and I really thought that I made the most out of that shot. But I find myself about 18 months ago uh, outraged over the fact uh, that this country is bankrupt, that 43 cents out of every dollar that we're spending is borrowed, and that this needs fixing. And as far as the blame goes, I think that Republicans can share in that blame just as much as Democrats. These are political promises that have been made that should have never been made. I watched them being made. To me, they were Ponzi schemes. When it comes to uh, Medicaid, Medicare, 
uh, uh, Social Security. Um, these are areas that need to undergo significant reform if, if they're going to be viable into the future. Uh, and we can drill down that, uh, drill down on that if you like. But really, we need to be looking at uh, cutting government by 43% if we're just going to balance revenues with expenditures. I really believe that we're on the verge of, of a financial collapse in this country, perhaps this country and worldwide. And, and that comes about uh, with uh, tomorrow, Portugal coming to market with its debt, nobody wanting to buy that debt, um, yield going up uh, to attract more buyers, still no buyers. Well, now all of a sudden, government debt has been put under the microscope worldwide. And you know what? Maybe, maybe uh, nobody wants to buy U.S. debt, which is encumbered by $100 trillion in unfunded entitlement liability. But we do have the Federal Reserve in this country buying up our long-term debt and buying up uh, government bonds. Imagine Bernie Madoff being able to print counterfeit money to cover his scheme. Uh, there, there would have been no end to that scheme. Well, there is an end to this scheme. And the end to this scheme is, is that right now, if interest rates just return to historic norms, uh, the interest on our debt will go to, what, to more than what we're currently spending on defense, about $800 billion a year. That's if interest rates just go to historic norms. That would be the interest that we would pay on our debt. There's no reason to believe that interest rates will just go back to historic norms. At some point, interest rates will probably go higher. And then in today's dollars, that's over a trillion dollars in just interest on the debt alone. So when we look at Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, again, significant reform in the entitlement areas that they should somehow be viable going into the future. Looking at defense spending, um, I think that this country has an absolute obligation to provide for a strong national defense. I would argue that we can, can afford to provide ourselves with a strong national defense, just not the rest of the world. Um, I was opposed to us going into Iraq uh, at the start. Uh, I thought that we had the military surveillance capability to see Iraq roll out any weapons of mass destruction, that if they would have done that, we could have gone in and militarily, surgically addressed that situation. I thought if we went into Iraq, we would find ourselves in a civil war to which there would be no end. I thought that Afghanistan at the beginning was completely warranted. I thought that was a military strike against Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda, those that we really are at war with. But we're now into our 10th year of engagement in Afghanistan. A lot of men and service women have lost their lives I'm afraid a lot more will end up losing their lives. We're building roads, schools, bridges, highways, and hospitals in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we're borrowing 43 cents out of every dollar to do that. Uh, to me, this is just insane. We're nation-building throughout the world. Don't we have our own nation to build? We are spending more on military spending in this country than all the other countries in the world combined, and we're 5% of the world's population. Just seems a little bit off-kilter. I talked earlier about free markets, believing in free markets, uh, believing in educational entrepreneurs being able to deliver better products, better services at lower prices. When the whole health care debate started... 
I had this notion that we would have the government eliminating impediments uh, for healthcare entrepreneurs that would want to enter into that space to deliver better products, better services at lower prices. When this whole healthcare thing started out, uh, I had envisioned gallbladders are us. I had envisioned clinics specializing in gallbladder surgery at thousands of dollars as opposed to tens of thousands of dollars. We're getting on airplanes right now to go to India to have heart surgery at tens of thousands of dollars as opposed to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Unleashing the free market onto health care would really result, in my opinion, uh, in lower costs and higher quality. I had stitches in Taos a couple of years ago skiing. Uh, it was um, seven stitches. Uh, it took the doctor 10 minutes to administer the stitches, and the cost of the stitches was 750 bucks. Well, that's the cost of stitches. I just have to believe, though, if the government were really engaged in, in uh, bringing about competition to health care, that uh, physician's assistants uh, might have opened up uh, a stitch clinic in Albuquerque that would have done that same procedure for 75 bucks. I just have this sense that that might have happened. I'd have put a Band-Aid over my cut, and I'd have driven down to Albuquerque to have that done. The notion of insurance for health care. Insurance, insurance is about paying more money than into a system that you, than you get back. That's just the nature of insurance. So in a free market system, I would buy insurance to pay for catastrophic injury or illness, and I would want to pay as you go, advertise pricing. Uh, I think that insurance in this country right now is analogous to uh, grocery insurance. Why don't we have grocery insurance in this country? Groceries are so expensive, let's just take out grocery insurance, where when we go to the store to buy groceries, well, there's no advertised pricing because... Grocery insurance pays for it. And when I go to buy my evening meal, do I buy ground round or do I buy fillets? Well, I really like fillets, and I don't have to pay for the fillets. Grocery insurance pays for the fillets. So I'll take the fillets, and I go out to the checkout stand. And what has the owner of the grocery store done to the prices of groceries? Well, he's jacked them out the roof because nobody pays for groceries. Grocery insurance does. I just think that health care reform in this country... Uh, is a situation where we're going to drop 30 million more Americans onto a system with no added capacity. In my opinion, it's going to result in much higher prices and rationing. Another really hot-button issue of the day is immigration. Um, I really think that there were a couple of, uh, a couple of you know, and as a border governor of New Mexico, I, I really feel like I have an understanding of immigration and the problems surrounding immigration and some real fixes that, uh, uh, that would uh, dramatically help out the situation. I think there were a couple of other border governors that actually understood the immigration problem also uh, and uh, re were really embarked on real fixes. One was Ronald Reagan. Uh, the other one was George Bush. Uh, but very simply, um, I think that uh, someone wanting to come into this country, an immigrant wanting to, in, to come into this country to work, should be able to get uh, a work visa. Make it easy for individuals that want to come into this country uh, to get a work visa. And work visa, background check, Social Security card, pay taxes, income tax, Social Security, uh, Medicare, uh, um, 
that uh, immigration should not be about welfare, that it should be about work. Uh, when George Bush said uh, amnesty for those 11 million illegal immigrants that are here right now, I want to tell you, amnesty has never meant, when George Bush talked about amnesty, amnesty never meant citizenship, ever. Just disavow the notion of amnesty with citizenship. All we're talking about here are individuals that are here in this country illegally that you want to document, by document, social security card, background check, pay taxes, uh, uh, but it's not about citizenship. So part of comprehensive immigration reform needs to be to declare what it is to be a citizen. I'm not even talking about that. So I say set up a grace period whereby the 11 million illegal immigrants that are here right now can get a work visa uh, documented. Uh, and then uh, as far as building a fence or, or putting the National Guard arm in arm across 1,600 miles of border to secure the border, um, I just suggest to you that that might be hundreds of billions of dollars and that it would be hundreds of billions of dollars spent with little or no benefit. Uh, also, uh, legalize marijuana. Legalize marijuana and arguably 75% of the border violence with Mexico goes away. That's the estimate of drug cartels activity that is engaged in just the marijuana trade around the border. 28,000 deaths south of the border uh, in the last four years, if we're not able to connect the dots between prohibition and violence, I don't know if we ever will. Take the money out of marijuana, so goes the violence. Proposition 19 in California tomorrow comes to a vote, legalize marijuana, legalize, control it, regulate it, tax it. It's estimated the cost of marijuana in California would drop from $390 an ounce to $39 an ounce if that happens. That's taking the money out of marijuana. So I'm here today. Um, I formed Our America Initiative. Uh, the idea was, was to try and put a voice uh, to the national outrage over where we've put ourselves. The idea is to actually present some ideas on how we might get out of this how we might write the financial ship. Uh, we write the financial ship overnight, I think, if we just provide certainty that we are going to engage in balancing revenues with expenditures, that we are going to engage in limiting government growth, and that we actually have to go back and, and cut uh, the growth that's occurred. And then if we show a willingness uh, to reduce taxes that wherever possible we're going to reduce taxes, uh, to me that generates real uh, economies, uh, that economics benefits as a result of lower uh, tax burdens. So um, I wouldn't be here uh, in front of you right now if what I was saying was being said. It's not. Uh, and I wouldn't be here right now if I didn't think that this does need to be said. Uh, there's no they out there that's going to come to our rescue on this. Uh, election day is tomorrow. I think that right now the sentiment in this country is, is that anybody that's in office belongs out of office. I think that's the sentiment. And I think Republicans are going to pick up as a result of this phenomenon simply because they're the minority party. But if Republicans don't get the religion of the checkbook back, uh, I don't see Republicans hanging around next cycle. And I think that that's a good thing. And I hope we continue this cycle until we can actually address these problems. 
and get us back to what this country has always represented and still does, and that's liberty and that's freedom and that's the personal responsibility that goes along with that. So with that said, I would, I would love to um, any comments, any questions, uh, any insults that maybe any of you have. A few requests. Uh, please wait for the microphone so that our online audience has the benefit of your wise and thoughtful question. Uh, one, two, please make sure your question is in the form of a question and not a statement. And uh, let us know your name, please. Thanks for your remarks. I'm Kurt Couchman. I do government affairs here at the Cato Institute. And uh, I was just wondering, you've been elected to statewide office twice in New Mexico. Uh, there are two uh, New Mexico senators, Senator Bingaman and Senator um, Udall. Um, and neither one of them have shown themselves to be particularly a friend of limited government and liberty and so on. So do you see anyone, you can include yourself if you want, um, potentially taking on either one of those and actually uh, campaigning on a message of liberty and free markets and limited government? I, I, I um, it would not be me running for Senate in New Mexico that would uh, that would uh, do that. But yeah, I do. I do see. I, I see an opportunity right now for that message. I see an awareness right now in this country that I have never seen in my lifetime before uh, that might present that opportunity to actually go in and make a huge difference. Now that's my opinion, and uh, um, we'll see. Uh, running in New Mexico? No, not in New Mexico. I mean, Doug Turner was was one of those guys. But you know, you get caught up in the campaigns, and uh, and I I think that I I just would like to think that uh, that truth might actually prevail starting now with this election cycle, and that if you don't deliver on the truth, if you don't deliver on what it is you promised to do, then I hope I hope you're in for a limited stay. And I, I would hope, too, that everybody that gets elected, that they would recognize that by doing the right thing might mean that they don't get reelected. That would also be refreshing. Uh, Trevor Burris uh, here at Cato. Uh, now that you've been in politics and you have such a libertarian view on it, do you believe more in politics than you did before and the ability to actually get the stuff done? Or did you see bad things and believe less in it? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I really think that this can be fixed, but it's got to happen now. There's no more kicking the can down the road. And, uh, and I wouldn't be here. I would not be here if I, if I were hearing these things said. I, I mean, what I hear is that we need to cut government spending. I, I hear that from the Republicans. But then I also see uh, the Republicans running ads on TV that not Medicare. The Democrats want to cut your Medicare. Well, no, duh. Um, it, it has to take place. It has to be reformed. It has to dramatically be reformed. I, I think that Medicaid needs to be capitated when it comes to the states. I think that Social Security, if you just look at raising the retirement age, that's, that's, that's a no-brainer. It has to happen. Uh, coupled with that, um, I would like to see the ability to self-direct my funds. Uh, if I were a 17-year-old and I would have been able to self-direct my funds since the age of 17, I think I'd have five times the retirement uh, today that I'm going to enjoy with Social Security. Uh, even today, I would opt to self-direct 100% of the funds that I have to Social Security because I'd like to keep my funds in my family 
Um, I'd like those funds to be able to be passed down, something that does not happen with Social Security. Uh, Medicare, I think Medicare has got to have some sort of means testing. Uh, We we absolutely have to examine uh, Medicare uh, to significantly reduce costs or, or we're going to implode. You see, when the, when the Ponzi scheme gives itself up, is when the Ponzi scheme gives itself up, when interest on the debt becomes the largest ticket item that we pay for. And what are we paying for that we're getting nothing for? That's, that's really, but that day is very close. Right now, it's about, about a quarter of a trillion dollars. We effectively have 0% interest rates, which puts the treasuries at, what, two and a quarter today? Does anybody know? So two and a quarter on the treasuries. Well, historic norms have it go, go to 5 and 5.4, whatever it is, and all of a sudden now you're at $800 billion and go a little bit higher than that, and boom, it's the largest ticket in the, in the budget. Hi, uh, Gabrielle Trent from Reason. Um, when it comes to health care, what are a couple things that you think that could be done relatively easily to help increase competition and lower prices? Well, that the government would get out of uh, get out of health care. I, I think it's the most. And, and by the way, I, 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 I'm not saying anything surprising here. I, I think that uh, government or excuse me, health care in this country is about as far removed uh, from free market as it possibly could be. Uh, that uh, getting back to eliminating impediments, uh, eliminating impediments for um, for uh, e- e- Eastern philosophy uh, medicines as opposed to just Western philosophy, uh, whether that be massage, whether that be uh, na- uh, natural, uh, um, um, what you call it? Na- natural kinds of medications, <laughs> medical marijuana. I mean, medical marijuana uh, could reduce uh, health care costs by billions and billions uh, of dollars uh, every year to the benefit of many, for some not, but for, for the benefit of many. So I, I, I see it as virtually limitless, uh, the, the ways in which and, – and if, we, if, there was, if there was advertised pricing and you had to pay for your health care as you went, I think it would become very, very – uh, competitive, and you would determine you 'd get on the internet and determine if you really needed an MRI when today you 're being ordered to have an mri you 'd probably take your chances with a two hundred dollar uh, x ray as opposed to thousands of dollars for an mri and who 's to say where an MRI would go to if they absolutely blew the lid off of supply when it came to MRIs that anybody could get into the MRI business uh, reading it would be another story but uh, just limitless possibilities, none of which have been addressed. None of which. Hi, I'm Joe Morris from Sensible, uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy. I'm just curious to know what you think about um, how much do we need uh, police reform and, say, the reform of civil asset forfeiture? Uh, I, I believe we need uh, reform in asset for, forfeiture, but th- those uh, reforms come about with legalizing marijuana, in my opinion. In my opinion, legalizing marijuana really starts a domino effect to rational drug policy. Uh, and um, I think that, uh, that our drug laws have contributed to uh, more than any other single item in our society today to an overall disrespect for the law and law enforcement. I think that that has been the single 
biggest contributor to that phenomenon. I've got a question from online. Um, over here. <laughs> uh, this is from Peter Antosh. He says, um, do you think entitlement and elimination is possible on the federal level, or would entitlements realistically need to be moved to state governments or personal accounts and still be regulated by the federal government? Uh, I'm a real states' rights person, so I talked about Medicaid and uh, just getting the federal – the federal government could block grant the states but make it a finite amount of money as, as opposed to what's happening today. And uh, is it possible? Yeah, I, I believe that this is possible. But getting the federal government uh, out of state governments uh, is also very, very favorable. Uh, talking about um, – the federal government and what the federal government could do to improve education in this country. Well, I think that the biggest thing that the federal government could do to improve education in this country would be to abolish the Federal Department of Education. And let me explain. The federal government gives about 11 cents out of every dollar that the states spend. But the 11 cents comes with 16 cents worth of strings attached. So it's really a negative. It really costs states to take federal money when it comes to education. Just get the federal government out of education, return education to the states, 50 laboratories of innovation, and watch what happens. There'll be some best practices that will emerge, and, and, and they will, in fact, um, create better products, better services. That actually leads right into the next question online from Michael Willie. He says, he's from uh, the lottery film. Uh, he says, as a proponent of school choice, do you prefer educational tax credits or direct government aid voucher programs? Well, I, I'm philosophically, you know, get the government out of uh, education. But, but philo philosophy aside, here's what we're spending and in the case of uh, New Mexico, let's just take New Mexico as an example. And maybe we'll take Washington, D.C. as an example because I think that you've got about the highest unit value of any, of any student in the country. What is the unit value of a student in Washington, D.C.? 18 grand? 26 grand? 26 grand. So 26 grand in Washington, D.C. This is what we're spending. Now, Let's just let's just say that we could that we'd issue a voucher for twenty grand, and and open that up to educational entrepreneurs out to grab that twenty grand and deliver better educational services to the student involved, the family and the student involved. I just have to believe, given given what we've got going currently, that we could reduce significantly what we're currently spending. And by the way, the 26 grand would, the voucher would always be, this is what I proposed in New Mexico, the voucher would always be good in public school where you came from. You could still go to public school if that's where you felt that your needs were best met. But there would be a lot of public schools that would end up closing, and that would be a shame because you'd assume that they closed because nobody wanted to go to them or they weren't doing that. And it's also, I think, uh, important to point out that private schools, on average, charge uh, two-thirds of what public schools charge. My name is David Beer. I'm with uh, the Institute for Energy Research, but uh, my question's not really connected to energy, so... But anyway, um, I just wanted to ask, what is your opinion about the government's involvement in the 
marriage industry and whether or not you believe that they should have any role in sanctioning marriage on any level, federal or local. Yeah, no, I I would uh, agree with that completely. I don't think that the government should be in the marriage business. Uh, The government might be in the civil union business uh, and then leave the marriage uh, marriage issue to uh, the churches. That's what I that's what I believe. Uh, when you talk about Social Security and Medicare reform, do you – sorry, I'm Elizabeth and I'm an intern here at Cato. Uh, do you have an eye toward ultimately abolishing those as government programs and returning all of that power and money to individuals? Or do you see it sort of uh, continuing into the future in a smaller reformed you know, I think I think you got to take steps on this. So, so back to Medicare. I mean, one of the one of the aspects of Medicare is we all pay into Medicare. Now, what gets paid out it dwarfs what gets paid in. But if we had medical uh, savings accounts for Medicare that started when we were seventeen years old and had built those accounts up over the years, that I think that would those would be very significant. But. Um, I, I guess, uh, you know, as a Republican, I guess I'm in the camp that there are those that are in need and, and that the government um, actually, you know, I, I'd like to help out people that are truly in need. I, I just have a sense that we've way overstepped that uh, and that we could, uh, l- looking at welfare reform in this country, for example, um, the notion that Mexicans are taking entry-level jobs away from Americans, I, I don't buy that at all because we don't take entry-level jobs. We can sit at home and make as much money or a little bit less money by not working at all, welfare. And so there needs to be significant reform in all these areas. When, when you talk about 43% of federal government spending needs to be cut to balance revenues with expenditures, that's not minor. That That is not minor. I would say that is some really serious medicine. But if we don't take the serious medicine, uh, I'm going to argue that we're all going to be left with nothing as, op- as opposed to addressing these issues. Hey, Gary. I'm Jason Schur. Uh, my question for you is, in regards to your philosophy, was there something that was a moment in time that made you think a different way? Or do you think you've always had this philosophy throughout your entire life? Well, my my biggest epiphany, I guess, was when I when I made my first real money, and and realized that half of what I was going to make was going to go to the government, and somehow I had this sense that there were tax loopholes and stuff that nobody really paid half of what they made to the government, and that's exactly what it is, and that's exactly what I experienced, and that was a real epiphany. I I mean I heard about it, but actually having that be a reality, that I'm not paying my fair share when half of what I make goes to the government. So I'd like to see those dollars spent wisely. That was my, that was my wake up. There aren't, weren't any tax breaks. I should be glad that I have the money to be able to pay half of what I make. Got another one from online uh, from Andrew Yuara. Uh, he says, uh, what is your stance on the issue of Internet neutrality? Do Internet providers have the right to limit what other people are able to access? 
I hope, hope by asking that question, they're just gonna they're they're reaffirming what they know I'm going to answer, or hopefully know I'm going to answer. No, we shouldn't be restricting the internet at all. Hi, my name is Jacob, also uh, from the Cato Institute. If Prop 19 passes in California tomorrow, uh, realistically, how long do you think it would take before maybe other states take similar action and then uh, that has an effect on federal drug policy? Do you think that could happen fairly quickly or do you think it's going to be a long, drawn-out fight, perhaps, you know, decades, decades longer? Or do you think no, no, I, I really think it's going to be in the months and uh, years category. Uh, it's my understanding that the prohibition of alcohol was brought to an end. The repeal of pro prohibition of alcohol was brought about by New York saying to the federal government, we're not going to enforce uh, federal law when it comes to alcohol anymore. My understanding, that was the domino that fell. I think that this has that same potential uh, and that uh, the potential is going to get seen very early on when there's going to a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, tourism dollars are going to be spent on uh, airplane rides to California if this passes. That's my, that's my sense of it. And there are going to be other states that aren't going to want to lose out on this phenomenon. And there'll be, there'll be the fact that um, in California uh, and, and anywhere that this occurs, that the country becomes a much better place to live overnight. And it starts with law enforcement waking up tomorrow and going out and enforcing real crime as opposed to victimless crime. My name is Armin Rosen uh, from Reason. Uh, you spoke a little bit earlier uh, saying that we shouldn't be building other nations when we still have to sort of build up the United States. And I'm wondering how that translates to your own view on how the U.S. should project its power in the world. Uh, do you think that foreign aid needs to be curtailed? And if so, what foreign aid do you think needs to be curtailed? And just how in general do you think uh, the United States should sort of advance its interests in the international sphere? So, um, so foreign aid, um, I, I think we should probably uh, curtail 100%. Uh, we're, we're borrowing 43 cents out of every dollar that we're spending. So how can we grant any foreign aid given that we're borrowing to do that? But I think it's important to distinguish between foreign aid and military alliances. Uh, I think military alliances are something that, that are very viable and that um, act in our best interests. And, and I would just... Uh, distinguish between the two. Military alliances are something, uh, is something that we should uh, maintain and foster and, uh, again, just separate that from uh, foreign aid. Uh, Micah Cohen, uh, GW Liberty Society. I have a question about uh, the banking system. Uh, you mentioned the upcoming financial collapse, but I was wanting your view on the Federal Reserve and Freddie and Fannie and the notion of too big to fail for these banks. Well, Freddie and Fannie should be allowed. What the federal government right now is, ought to do with regard to Freddie and Fannie is get them off their books, take the write downs, uh, have these institutions recapitalized and that they're not any part of the government at all. That that ought to take place. And regarding the Federal Reserve, uh, I, I think that we could function uh, with a regional regional banking system without the Federal Reserve. Um, I, I, this isn't a dog that I have in the fight, but based on what I know about the Federal Reserve, uh, 
if if I were in a position to abolish the Federal Reserve as, say, president, um, I, I would sign off on that happening. But I don't see that happening. I just don't even see it remotely happening, given that we couldn't even pass a, a, a uh, audit the Fed audit the Fed bill with a little teeth. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, and then uh, competing currencies. You know, it, it's another thing. I, I, I certainly understand competing currencies, and given an opportunity, if if if, if a bill like that passed Congress, understanding how that could be accomplished, um, I, I would sign off on that. But that's not going to happen. It's not going to pass Congress. It's just not going to happen. I want to chip in one more from online so they don't feel left out. Uh, this comes from Troy. He said, in cutting out the budget that you need to to balance it, uh, where would you start and why? Well, you'd start with – I mean, just, uh, as a general way of looking at it, 43 cents out of every dollar that we're currently spending needs to be cut if we're just going to balance revenues with expenditures. So simply looking at it, it's 43% of everything. That's a simple way of looking at it. And when you go down on the big ticket items, that's Medicaid, that's Medicare, uh, that's Social Security, that's defense, uh, that's, you know, that's it's everything. Somebody asked the question the other day, well, what about farm subsidies? Well, let's just look at farm subsidies simply. 43% of farm subsidies need to be cut. I'm Dan. I'm from uh, intern here at Cato. Uh, I was wondering um, if you thought that there was a, a movement within the Republican Party that doesn't promote such an overly aggressive foreign policy. And if so, do you think that movement could ever be big enough to um, create a divide in the Republican voting base? Uh, I think that exists right now. I think that exists right now. I think that we all, we all right now, back to this awareness, we all right now recognize that what we've been engaged in is nation building and that, it, that we're broke as a result of it. We're going to be of no good to any country worldwide broke, and that's where we're at. Hi, I'm Marissa from the Cato Institute. I was wondering if you were president in 2012, hint, hint, uh, what would you do and what's the first thing that you would do? Well, again, we're speaking theoretically because I'm a 501c4 and that's an advocacy committee. I'm the honorary chairman. I'm raising money. I can't talk about running for political office of any kind, but theoretically – uh, based on my experience as governor, what I was most proud of as governor was really A through Z. It was taking all the issues, establishing a benchmark, and then moving forward in every single category. That's what I was most proud of. I'll tell you that the least amount of progress that I was able to accomplish in New Mexico were any areas of government where we had the federal overlay, which would have been uh, Medicaid or where, we have a where we'd have a court overlay when it came to judicial decisions, or like I say, in, when it came to the federal government, educate, that educational dollar came with a huge burden attached to it. Uh, Medicaid came with a huge burden attached to it. Medicaid and Medicare really do overlap. Uh, so uh, when it comes to health care, really, uh, government has just thwarted uh, health care uh, initiatives because of the, of the control involved. And then welfare, that's... Uh, you know, that, that really ends up to be Medicaid. But, uh, you know, welfare left to, the, left to the states, that would be really innovative and would really result in, I think, uh, better delivery of services to those truly in need. So a couple more. 
Hi, Josh Lorenz. I'm a clinical pharmacist. And before I ask my question, I want to say thank you. New Mexico is actually one of the best states to practice uh, pharmacy in the actual country in terms of decreased regulations. Um, But my question is, must have happened when I was governor. Yeah. I don't think it's happened since. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm just going to oh, okay. assume right. that it was, it, was, uh, <laughs> it was your idea. My question is, especially in terms of politics, and maybe your first term is a little bit different than your second, but approaching some of these sacred cows like Medicare um, and in the healthcare industry, um, you know, regulation and licensing issues, um, what were some of the sacred cows or difficult issues that you you had politically in your first term versus your second term? And how did you approach those and able to come out winning a second term in New Mexico? Well, I, I hope you got this from what I'm saying here. Is I really had a wonderful experience. I had a Mr. Smith goes to Washington experience as governor, and it really stemmed from the fact that there weren't any sacred cows. I mean, really, when you take that attitude, when you take the attitude that, yeah, you do understand that this is a sacred cow, but, but you're going you're gonna to be worshiping it if you don't address it. And so I, wasn't, I didn't worship any of them. I took them all on, and that was my experience. So... Uh, there wasn't anything that uh, that I, I'm going to argue we didn't make a difference on. Now, I, I, I'll honestly give you an appraisal on where we didn't move forward, and those would have been in those areas where there was that federal overlap. I mean, it just provided the least amount of flexibility. And I always said as governor of New Mexico that I could have cut government by one-third and no one would have noticed the difference. But I wasn't the dictator. I, I was one of three branches of government. I respect that. I respect it. Um, but that's the reality, too. So thank you all very much. I really, really appreciate you taking your time. You had plenty of other places I'm sure you could have been, but you were here, and I thank you. Thank you very much, Governor Johnson. Uh, I'd also like to give a special thanks to Alexandra Fisher for making this possible, also Chip Bishop in our student programs, uh, Rachel Goldman and uh, Victoria Cartwright uh, for their help making all this possible, and, of course, kiddos, uh, wonderful interns who keep things running and and, uh, running smoothly. Um, With that, let's go ahead and uh, head upstairs and keep the conversation going over some drinks and light snacks. Thanks for coming.